Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Who was Terence Otway and why was he chosen to capture one of the biggest German bunkers in the early hours of D-Day? Turns out that he was one of the most extraordinary Allied commanders to fight against the Germans on the 6th of June, 1944. Welcome to season three of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton, and today we're talking about a top secret mission that took place just a couple of hours before the Allied beach landings. It was still night when a young German officer named Raymond Steiner took a look outside his observation post on the coast of Normandy. There was drizzle in the air and a white crest on the waves. Bad weather, he muttered to himself, not the kind of weather for an invasion. He stepped back inside his bunker and decided to return to bed. Steiner was the officer in charge of Merville Battery, a giant gun emplacement that was situated just inland from the beach. It was one of the key defences in the Atlantic Wall, the string of fortifications that the Germans had built all along the coast of Normandy. Merville was among the biggest gun batteries of all, a massive fortified bunker whose 160 gunners were under Steiner's command. Its four gun emplacements were buried in 18 feet of concrete and were positioned to dominate a huge length of Normandy foreshore. As such, it represented a very real threat to the Allied beach landings. Eisenhower knew this and ordered that Merville be destroyed. In the early hours of the 6th of June, before the troops poured ashore from their landing crafts, a small group of specially trained soldiers were to be dropped into the countryside around Merville. They had one order, destroy the big guns. Raymond Steiner knew none of this. He'd fallen into a deep sleep in his coastal observation post and had no idea that thousands of paratroopers were already landing in Normandy. The first he knew something was wrong was when he was abruptly woken by the ring of his telephone. He glanced at his watch. It was 0.25am local time. He lifted the receiver and heard a frantic voice at the other end. Herr Lieutenant, said a breathless voice, a glider's come down in our battery and we're in close quarters fighting. Steiner was so alarmed that he immediately got dressed and stepped outside. When he glanced towards the Merville battery, he saw dozens more gliders swooping towards it. Merville was indeed under attack. For those involved in the mission to destroy the battery, British paratroopers, it had turned into a mission from hell. The landing had been a disaster, with men scattered so widely that they were unable to form any sort of coherent fighting force. Among the paratroopers in the Merville assault team was a young man named Alan Mower. As soon as he landed, he peered into the darkness in the hope of seeing his comrades. But there was no one. Boiled beef! Boiled beef! He called out the agreed password as loud as he dared, but no one answered. Those like Moa, who'd survived the drop, collected their scattered equipment and made their way to the pre-agreed rendezvous. Among them was Alan Jefferson, who found his commanding officer, Terence Otway, looking very peculiar indeed. 
The reason for this soon became apparent. The drops are bloody chaos, he said. There's hardly anybody here. Jefferson looked round and saw just a handful of men. It dawned on us, he said, that something had gone frantically wrong. This was an understatement. The landing had been a total disaster. Otway had trained no fewer than 750 men for the assault on Merville. Of these, only a 100 had made it to the rendezvous. The rest had been shot, captured or sucked into the flooded meadows. Otway explained to Jefferson that he had none of the special explosives needed to destroy the Merville guns, nor mortars, nor even any wireless sets. He waited for 15 minutes, agonising over what to do. In that time, another 50 stragglers arrived at the rendezvous, but he still had only a fifth of his men, and many of his platoon leaders had not showed up. He turned to Alan Jefferson, a junior subaltern, and promptly promoted him to commander of C Company. Well, don't just stand there. Get on. Go. See your company. Jefferson did just that and discovered that it consisted of five men, two of whom were seriously injured. It really was lamentable, he said. Otway was caught in a terrible dilemma. Do I go with 150 men, he asked himself, or do I pack it in? He turned to Joe Wilson, his aide, and betrayed a rare moment of weakness. I don't know what I'm going to do, Wilson. Wilson stiffened and replied, There's only one thing, sir. He then handed Otway a hip flask, as if it were a decanter on a silver tray, and added, with the calm deference that only a former valet could truly muster, Shall we have our brandy now, sir? In the space of a few minutes, Otway dramatically modified the plan of attack. He divided the men into four assault groups, each composed of 12 men. The assault was to be led by Alan Parry, who'd spent the last 20 minutes up a tree trying to attract stray parachutists with his lamp and whistle. When it was clear that no one else was going to arrive, Otway ordered the men to move up to the barbed wire perimeter fence, a long crawl through waterlogged craters and shell holes filled with mud. Move up! The men pushed themselves forward through the mud and only stopped when they reached the outer ring of wire that surrounded the Merville battery. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. It was already 4.45 in the morning, far later than intended, and Otway knew that it was now or never. His two explosive experts blew a hole through the perimeter fence, sending wire and earth into the night sky. Get ready, men! Alan Parry gave a shrill blast on his whistle. Jefferson blew his hunting horn. Get in! Get in! yelled Otway. It was the time for the attack. 
Bastards! 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 Sid Capon was bawling at the top of his voice as he charged towards the gap in the wire. He was heading for the first casemate, one of the four gun emplacements. Mines! yelled a voice. Bullets were zipping through the air and smacking into the wet earth. Alan Jefferson was hurtling forward when something slapped hard on his leg. I went down like a sheep on its back. Sprawled in the mud and sprayed with shrapnel, he watched the others continue their charge. Alan Parry had also been brought down by gunfire. I was conscious of something striking my left thigh and my leg collapsed under me. Private Smith hit a mine that exploded in front of him, gouging out an eye. Hal Hudson received multiple wounds to his stomach and clutched his open belly with his hand. He could feel sticky blood pumping out and tried desperately to staunch the flow. Are you all right? shouted Otway as he ran past. I think so. He's been hit in the stomach, said a voice from the gloom. Oh, bad luck. Alan Moore and Sid Capon were now so close to Casemate 1 that they could see the camouflage netting. Capon noticed that the rear steel doors were ajar and hurled two fragmentation grenades inside. The effect of the explosion in a confined space was devastating. Kamarad! Kamarad! Ruski! Ruski! Those who survived the blast came running out with their hands up. What the hell are they on about? thought Capon. Only later did he realise that they were Russian prisoners conscripted to fight for the Germans. The attack on the Merville battery seemed totally chaotic to those involved, but it was nowhere near as disastrous as it appeared. One group of 15 men had reached the fourth casemate, while another team had made it to the third. Kamarad! 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 Yet more Russians emerged from the darkness. One of the British platoon leaders had lost so many men that he felt no sympathy. We'd have liked to have shot the bloody lot. A few hundred yards away, in his coastal observation post, the battery's German commander, Raymond Steiner, put a call through to the battery's command centre. Down the line, I could hear my men were suffering. Some were praying, some were swearing. He hung up the phone and decided to see for himself what was happening, setting off with a couple of others. By the time they reached the crossroads close to the battery, they could go no further. The situation was chaotic, he said. Nobody knew who was friend or foe. Terence Otway was one of the first to realise that the battery had been captured. It happened in a flash. All four casemates had been abandoned by the defenders. This should have been a moment of celebration, but the assault was not yet over. It was imperative for his men to destroy the battery's big guns. It was now at this moment of victory that the battle took a most unwelcome twist. When Alan Parry entered Casemate 1, he saw that the gun was tiny and not at all like the huge cannon he'd been led to expect. There was worse news to come. The rest of Merville's guns were not heavy-duty artillery pieces, as had been believed, but small Czech guns that represented very little threat to the troops soon to land on the nearby beaches. This left the men with a terrible sense of deflation. Worse by far, their victory had come with a very high price tag. When Otway did a headcount, he discovered that only 75 of the 150 men involved in the assault were still standing. The capture of Merville was not the triumph it was supposed to be. Yet there was one aspect to the attack that was to be welcomed by all at Supreme Headquarters. Terence Otway had been warned that his Merville assault would require 750 men and tons of weaponry. In the event, he'd attacked the battery with only a fifth of his troop, a mixed group of men equipped with very little. 
This depleted force had nevertheless managed to seize Merville after a surprisingly short fight. Even more heartening was the fact that the battery's defenders had thrown in the towel as soon as the going got tough. This boded well for the beach landing soon to begin, for if a small group could capture a mighty battery, then it stood to reason that larger groups would be able to knock out the smaller coastal bunkers with relative ease. Such logic was lost on men still nursing their wounds. Most felt profoundly dejected, and there was a real danger that despondency would drain their remaining morale. Alan Parry was quick to see the need to give his men a lift. Injured in the leg and transported into field headquarters in a wheelbarrow, he summoned all the swagger he could muster when greeting Major George Smith, commander of the 9th Battalion headquarters. He took a brandy flask from his pocket, gulped a mouthful and beamed. A jolly good battle, what? Smith gave a vigorous nod. Black humour was not always appropriate but on this occasion it seemed to work, for the grim faces of the men burst into smiles. It had, after all, been a good night's work. This week's Unknown History snippet is about a crucial aspect of the invasion that all too often gets overlooked. In the hour before dawn, just minutes before the first wave of Allied troops were due to land on the beaches, there was to be an aerial bombardment of the Normandy coastline, one of such intensity that it was like no other in history. More than a 1,000 British RAF bombers were taking part in the raid, accompanied by 1,635 American planes, a mixed fleet of bombers that included twin-engine B-26 marauders, B-17 flying fortresses and B-24 liberators. Their task was to bomb the concrete coastal defences, bunkers, gun emplacements and machine gun nests, and attempt to destroy them before the infantry came into land. It was a dangerous operation. If the pilots dropped their bombs too early, they risked killing the Allied troops as they made their way towards the beaches. But if they dropped them too late, they risked killing many thousands of French civilians who lived on this stretch of coastline. The American 8th Air Force commanders were so concerned about harming their own soldiers that they asked Eisenhower if pilots might be allowed to delay the bombardment for up to 30 seconds as they passed over the coast. Eisenhower agreed, for he too was concerned about his troops getting hit. But it was a decision that was to have unfortunate consequences. Take the example of Omaha Beach. The 329 B-24 bombers targeting Omaha dropped 13,000 bombs in that pre-dawn period. But virtually all of them exploded in the clifftop pastureland, killing cows and damaging farms, but leaving the German coastal defences completely untouched. They didn't scour a single crater into the beaches, as was intended, in order to provide cover for the infantry soon to land. The Air Corps might just as well have stayed in bed, commented one American officer watching the bombing raid from a few hundred yards offshore. An English captain was equally damning. That's a fat lot of use, he said. All it's done is wake them up. In this, he was correct. As we'll hear in a later edition of this podcast, the hopelessly inaccurate bombing raid on Omaha Beach was indeed to prove an unmitigated disaster for the unfortunate young soldiers who were to be landed in the first wave.
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.